Welcome to the Upper Room Community Church Podcast. Wherever you are in your journey, we hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit us at upperroom.ca. So good to be back here again with you on this side of the pulpit. Although those of you who are at Vaughan are getting only a virtual image of me, but it's a larger than life one. Next week, for the next two weeks, I'll be back with you live. But again, such a joy to be here on this last month, like I was with you in the first month after Vijay's sabbatical. Now for the last month before he comes back, it's a real honor and I don't take that privilege lightly at all. I don't know about you guys, but I recycle. I recycle regularly, assiduously. I do a lot of hard work in making sure that the right pieces are in the right bins. And in fact, other members of the household that shall remain unnamed, if they put it in the wrong bin, I even fish it out and put it back in the right bin as well. But it wasn't always that way. I remember a time, not too long ago as a matter of fact, where I kind of believed in recycling. I understood the reasons for it, but I never really did it. In fact, my behavior only began to change when belief in recycling became a value. And that value was driven by a conviction of the ecological dimensions of Christian discipleship and the fact that I want to leave a legacy of a better world to my grandchildren. Now, you might say, that's very interesting, Sundar, but why talk about this? This is supposed to be a series on prayer. Well, hang in there with me and you'll find out why. See, in the religion that I grew up in, uh, most of the praying was done by the priests and the professionals, and that in a language that most common people did not understand. I certainly didn't. Corporate prayer together by ordinary people was completely unknown. And in terms of my own personal prayer life, I don't remember praying at all. I don't think I even prayed for exams and stuff like that. But then I became a follower of Jesus. I realized that I was actually leaving all religions behind to a relationship with a living God. And the people that were in instrumental in my early journey, they prayed and they prayed in ordinary language and it seemed like they were actually talking to somebody who was alive. Now, because I was exposed to this and also because I had a reasonable command of the English language, uh, I learned to pray in public and I think I prayed appropriately in our youth meetings that we were there and then when I came to North America with the Power to Change meetings that I was part of and then when I became part of a local church in Rexdale Alliance Church, I certainly prayed in the corporate prayer meetings. But my personal prayer life was completely non-existent until about three years before I actually became a pastor full-time, God kick-started that dimension of my life. That's a story for another Sunday, especially the last message in the series. But from that time on, because of four significant convictions among many in my life, prayer slowly has moved from being just a belief to something that I value deeply. And these convictions have only deepened those, uh, that uh, value for prayer. So here's the principle. In prayer, as in recycling, as in every area of life, even things that we believe in and which are true only translate into sustained action when belief becomes value based on strong convictions. Now, I don't know what your prayer journey has been like, but I suspect in a group this big, they're probably as varied as the individual's. So here's, here are some representative statistics that I think will give you some idea what a group of people might be uh, up to when it comes to prayer. For example, I learned that prayer was a deeply ingrained impulse. All kinds of people pray. Uh, 84% of people in a North American survey claimed they prayed at least uh, in this past week. 64% pray more than once a day. And so deeply ingrained is this impulse that even unanswered prayer, and I was quite surprised to read this, even unanswered prayer doesn't seem to deter that impulse. For example, 85% insisted 
that they could accept God's failure to grant their prayers. 82% don't turn away from God even when their prayers go unanswered. Only 13% declared they have lost faith because their prayers went unanswered. And if you think that was surprising, I also learned that skeptical agnostics were probably just one step away from atheists also pray. Here, look at this guy from the UK. Henry, a 64-year-old in the UK, said he prays every night leading by his bed. He starts by silently reciting the Lord's Prayer. Then he asks for his loved ones to be kept safe and well. Sometimes I include other specific people or suffering groups, he said. Asked if he believed in God, he said, I don't know, but I would describe myself at the skeptical end of agnosticism. I certainly wouldn't classify myself as religious. And yet the guy prays every day, the Lord's Prayer. So it would seem that this desire to pray is deeply ingrained in people. Well, you might say, well, in that case, why are you bothering with a whole series of four messages if even atheists who don't even believe in God, not even sure that he's there, pray? Well, the same survey also showed very, very low satisfaction levels. Only 20% of North Americans 45 or older who are somewhat religious cite prayer as their most satisfying or religious experience, which means 80% don't. Henry, for example, said, I worry about it quite a lot. Is it some kind of an insurance policy? Is it superstition? Or is it something real? Hardly very satisfying. Probably a couple of reasons that drive this degree of dissatisfaction. The same survey showed, for example, that a lot of people pray on the run. One half of the adults say that they are increasingly likely to call on God while engaged in activities such as cooking or exercising. I'm not sure I want to eat the food that they made. They combine prayer with daily activities. One in five pray while doing household chores or cooking. 15% pray while traveling and 12% pray during exercise or other leisure pursuits. It's not very different among evangelicals. 60% of evangelicals said they prayed on the move while walking or using transport. Now, I suppose prayer walking specifically, that's a different thing, but this is walking to get someplace. Nearly two-thirds admitted to being easily distracted when spending time. So distraction is one big reason for dissatisfaction. Here's another one. Although 87%, this is of evangelicals, agreed that every Christian needs to spend time alone with God on a daily basis, and that without that, their faith would suffer. They even believe that. 42% said that they find it difficult to find time on a regular, disciplined basis to pray and read the Bible. So distraction and busyness and hurry seem to be some huge issues. So if I can sum up all this research, so to speak, or surveys, here's a one-line summary of it. From skeptical agnostics to religious evangelicals, there seems to be an innate urge to pray, sustained by some sort of belief. But because it is so far from being a cherished value, it is not a priority that gets the attention it needs and so remains deeply unsatisfying. That's why a series like this is both timely and both necessary. And what I want to do is to unpack four convictions over these four weeks that taken together have in my life at least worked to move prayer from just a belief to a value and an increasingly cherished value and so keeps me committed to pray. Here are the four convictions. A prayer will only become a value when we realize that what? That life is war, that apart from Jesus we can do nothing, that the eternal God is Lord of time, and that God speaks to us in his word, inviting us into a life-giving conversation that transforms us. Those are the four convictions we're going to look at, one each weekend. Notice how each of them deals with one of the problems that we encounter in prayer. For example, the life is war uh, conviction will 
counter this peacetime mentality that leads to a privatized, disengaged life that is very little connected with the mission of Jesus. The second conviction that apart from Jesus we can do nothing will deal with the problem of self-sufficiency. What the Bible calls the arm of the flesh. We'll unpack that for you in the next message. The conviction that God is Lord of time will deal with the issue of busyness, especially conquering the tyranny of the urgent, the ruthless pressure of the to-do list in our lives. And fourthly, the fact that God can speak to us and we can dialogue with him counters the boredom that comes from mechanical, meaningless repetition and jargon-laden prayer. Now, before we go into the Henry's in our midst, can I say something? Thank you so much for coming. You're probably one of those people who does pray once in a while. Even though you may be at the agnostic end of the spectrum. Wherever you are on your journey with Christ, I think as you listen to these four convictions, they'll probably deepen your prayer life to take it to the next level. So thank you for coming today. Continue to come and hear us out for these four weeks as well. All right, with that, we're ready to launch into that first first. Uh, conviction I want to talk about today. But before I do, I want to just give you a framework for listening because it's important. As we are going through this, you might find yourself saying, how am I going to remember all this stuff? This is too much. Here's the deal. Don't worry. You don't have to remember anything. (laughs) Think of it as if we are going to Florida for the first time and you don't know how to get there. But I'm driving and I want you to follow me. I don't want you at any point to worry about how you got so far. I just want you to pay attention to me so you're following me where I'm going. That way you get to Florida. The destination is what's important. I want to lead you by the end of this message to this conviction that we're going to be talking about today. Now, of course, later on, if you want to take somebody there, if you want to go there yourself by yourself, then yes, you do need to do more. But for now, it's not your memory that is important. It's your attention that needs to be riveted. So that's all I'm asking you to do. Follow me like you would follow somebody in a car if they were going someplace where you wanted to go but didn't know how to get there. All right? Here's the conviction we'll look at today. We live in North America. We have this unusual luxury of living in a country that doesn't know what wartime is like. Other than our Canadian Armed Forces personnel and the people in our country who've come from war-torn countries like Syria and Iraq, most of us will live in peace. And what this peacetime mentality has done has blinded us to the reality of another war 24-7 that we are waging, but we don't even know what it is. And the Bible makes it very clear from the very beginning. The first two chapters of the Bible are the story of God creating. He created the universe, he created the earth, and he created human beings, the apex of his creation. He made them in his image and he gave them a mission on earth to rule and subdue creation for the benefit of humanity, for the glory of God, depending upon God for the wisdom to do it. Well, chapter 3, immediately, we come up against our enemy. Satan enters the picture, launches a broadside attack on the character of God and the word of God, and persuades our first humans to assert the independence of God, rebelling against him and saying, no, we will do it with our own wisdom. The resulting chaos created internal alienation, relational chaos, and fracture of their relationship with God. Fast forward a couple of millennia or more, until Jesus comes to it. Jesus came in the fulfillment of 2,000 years of history of the Jewish people to accomplish the work of redemption, to restore creation to its original intention by God. At the very beginning of his mission, his biographers record that he engaged with the devil who tried to dissuade him in exactly the same way that he did with Adam and Eve. And as Jesus nears the end of his life, 
crucifixion and resurrection the means by which he accomplishes redemptive mission. One of his disciples, Peter, when he heard that this Jesus was not going to be the kind of Messiah they were expecting, but who was going to suffer and die, he said, no, Lord, we don't want that to happen to you. You know what Jesus said to him? Get you behind me, Satan. So Satan, through one of his disciples, was trying to dissuade Jesus from his mission. And Judas, whom we all know is a disciple that betrayed Jesus, the evangelists, the recorders of the biographies of Jesus tell us that it was Satan who entered into the heart of Jesus. So he was there throughout the whole process. But the Gospels end with an account of the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and he accomplishes his final victory over the forces of darkness. And then he gives a commission to his disciples, which I looked in, in a moment. But one of the great leaders of the early church, whose name was the Apostle Paul, he sums it all up when he says it in these words. He says, stand therefore. Oh, sorry, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's a formidable opposition. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened. Here comes the weapon. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me. That's a pretty clear statement of the warfare that we're in. You see, there are human agents that form the delivery system for this warfare. A recent study the British, uh, by the British government showed that Christianity was probably the most persecuted religion in the world, reaching genocidal proportions in certain parts of the world. And even in our country, the judicial and the legislative system of our country is mounting ruthless attacks to limit the expressions of freedom of Christians and their convictions in our own country at this time. But be that as it may, behind all of this, says the Apostle Paul, 24-7 warfare is being waged against the church by the spiritual forces of darkness in the invisible realm. So the human persecutors and the human uh, oppressors are not the real enemy for us. It is what is going on in the heavenly realms. And the fundamental strategy that we find in the verses that were read for us is prayer. Notice the tense. Prayer is not just one more of the weapons. He lists all the weapons and then he changes the tense to praying in the Holy Spirit. The word praying is in a participle. It governs all the other phrases. It means that all those other weapons, we put them on and we deploy them, especially the sword of the Spirit, in prayer. So prayer becomes the foundational strategy when it comes to engaging in the spiritual warfare. Now, what do we pray about? Now that we understand the significance, the more we are convinced of the fact that we are in this warfare, the more we're going to pray because prayer is the foundational strategy for fighting this, this particular warfare that we have. So what is it that we pray? We move from the fact of the praying to the content of our praying. And here you might be surprised because if we're going to fight, you would think that our primary 
preoccupation in our prayers should be the people that we are fighting against, should be the human agents of this warfare or even the demonic spirits. You'll be in for a real surprise because what Jesus and the scriptures tell us is that the first and primary focus in our prayers is ourselves and the church. Uh, Jesus, for example, after he uh, rose from, uh, from the dead, before he departed earth, he gave this commission to the disciples. He said, all authority in on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, Jesus says, I have all authority and I'm putting that authority at your disposal. Now, we would expect in the face of warfare, we would expect a victorious leader to say, I'm giving you my authority, now go after those people that are opposing you. He didn't say that. He said, no, you use this authority to go proclaim to other people and invite them to become like me. Now, how did Jesus treat his enemies? Here's what we read. When Jesus began his ministry, he proclaimed in the synagogue, his first sermon, he proclaimed that the year of the Lord's favor had come. Not the year of judgment, the year of the Lord's favor had come. He extended forgiveness to his enemies. He died in order to secure their forgiveness. And then he says to the disciples, I am giving you my authority to go and proclaim this, to invite other people so that you and they can become like me. This is your attitude towards your enemies. (laughs) Wow. In other words, it's going to take a radical revolution of our hearts from the inside out if we're going to view our enemies in this way. So this is the surprising agenda, isn't it? That in waging this warfare, yes, there is a conviction that we are in war. Yes, there's a conviction that prayer is the foundation strategy. But amazingly, the first agenda item is not out there, but what is going on inside of our own lives. This is why Jesus, after he gave them the commission, you know what he said? He said, wait in Jerusalem until you receive power and the Holy Spirit comes upon you. For it is when the Spirit came upon them that their hearts were transformed and they changed the entire focus of their ministry in the way in which they did it. By the way, this is what people call revival. When the Spirit changes our heart to ourselves become like Jesus and proclaim this even to those who are our enemies in this warfare. And that's the way you fight the real web. Because you know, Satan hates the church. He hates the church. He divides the church because the church is the bride of Jesus. And that's why his first target is the church. And so we need to make sure that we are being revived by the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's helpful for us to take a look at what happened when the Holy Spirit did come. For the disciples did what Jesus told them to. They waited in the upper room. They sang. They worshipped. They prayed. And the Spirit came upon them. And look what happened to the church. So before he ever sent them out on this mission, he said, you need to be transformed. Look at what happened to them. It says they devoted, this this early church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received the food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. What characterized these people? What were the changes that took place in them? First of all, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. In other words, they embarked on a journey of doctrinal maturity. As the apostles would teach them, 
that Jesus, his life, his death and his resurrection was actually what the entire scriptures was all about. They were understanding now what the grand narrative of the entire Old Testament, as we call it, is and where they fit into it. That's, that's devoting themselves to apostles' doctrine. Then they devoted themselves to prayer and the breaking of bread. That's the celebration of communion. So this is a devotion to worship. Corporate worship became very important in their lives. And then thirdly, it says, they devoted themselves to the fellowship. Now, this fellowship has very little to do with <coughs> a 30-minute party, chomping on chips and having a few good conversations with people, though there's nothing wrong with that. It's much beyond that. It's the word koinonia, translated fellowship, which actually means a common sharing. Because basically, what's mine, yours, and what's yours is mine, whether it's come to time, energy, or resources. And the particular illustration he gives here is that there were many poor people amongst them who became followers of Jesus. And so those who were better off, whenever they came face to face with a need, they, they liquidated whatever they had and were able to supply these people. That was true fellowship. And where did they learn these needs? Because it also says they extended their fellowship into homes. Close heart-to-heart -heart connections over glad and happy meals together. Their homes became instruments for forging heart-to-heart -heart relationships because in that context they found out about the needs of the people and were able to bless them. And as a result of this, look what happened. The Lord kept adding people. Evangelism happened as the community was revived and became attractive to the people around them. And I love the word devoted. They didn't dabble in it like in a smorgasbord. They were devoted. You want to know the difference between devoted and dabbling? Take a look at this sentence. Pastor Sundar is really devoted to his family or how about Pastor Sundar just dabbles with his family? You get the picture, right? They were not dabbling in these things. They were completely devoted to them. So if any one of us has any doubt that the church needs revival, the church in North America, well, let's look at the contrast between this and what a typical North American church is like. Now, any particular thing that I say may not apply to anybody here, but this is the, I'm stepping back and look at the North American church as a whole, and we're part of it. First of all, We've not settled the issue of even being in church on a regular basis. Every Sunday is a new decision whether we're going to come or not. Is that dabbling or is it devoted? And when we do come, considered okay to just come 5 minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes late, miss a large section of the opening singing part of our worship, Probably something that we wouldn't dare to do if we were meeting with our boss or it's important meetings at work. But the question is, are we devoted to harnessing every single element of what the worship teams have put together to make us connect with God or do we dabble in it? How about prayer? I remember and not too long ago I was speaking in another country. It was at a prayer meeting before the main service started and truth to tell, the wife of the leader of the denomination in the midst of the prayer meeting was busy texting. Devoted or dabbling in prayer? And how about to the apostles' doctrine when the preaching of the word starts? Are we giving our entire attention to that preaching or is that ever-present smartphone ready as soon as it buzzes for us to take a look at what's happening? Devoted or dabbling to the apostles' doctrine? And what about fellowship? A quick 10-minute, 15-minute conversation and that too often with just our own inner circle. And we go away Sunday after Sunday, not any further connected in heart to even one person. Or is there an opportunity for 
some kind of a deep focused conversation with at least one person where we get to know them a little bit better. So maybe time, energy and other resources might be used to bless those people. Whether it's in the lobby of the church or in a small group that you might be part of. Now, don't get me wrong. My point in confronting us, if you will, with this contrast between the typical North American church and this revived community has nothing to do with scolding you or motivating you. This church didn't happen this way because Peter got up and scolded the people and said, you guys should know better by now, you're followers of Jesus. No, 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 that is, it's not happened that way. It happened because the Holy Spirit came upon them. This church became this kind of a church. Why? It is the work of the Spirit given in response to prayer in the light of the promise that Jesus came to baptize us with the Holy Spirit. That's the only point of this contrast. I've spelled out this contrast as honestly as I can, not to scold us, not even to exhort us, but to drive within us the conviction that we need revival. That's why we need to pray. That's why the first agenda has to be revival. It's interesting that the Apostle Paul who wrote these wrote this chapter 6 where he tells us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. The same one who told us that you put on the weapons in prayer, you know what he does at the beginning of that letter? He prays for their revival. Just listen to this. See, this is what revival, a revived church looks like. Here's what he prays. I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, the very people that he said you're going to be fighting against, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. The same Paul who's going to tell them about this warfare first prays for them because he already knows that that is the primary way in which you can defeat the enemy and that the first target of that prayer, the first agenda is the revived church. He does it again in chapter 3 in case we missed it. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Paul is actually giving them examples of what revival prayer actually looks like, because he's going to tell them that that's what you really need. And later on in chapter 5, just before he gets to chapter 6, he tells it another way. He says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, which is a euphemism for revival again. And what happens when the Spirit comes? You will address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Spiritual conversations will result. Singing and making melody in your heart will become worshipping people. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father rather than a grumbling people. And submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Humility in our relationships. The relational dimension of our lives gets transformed as we are revived by the Holy Spirit. And that's what makes us look attractive to the world that is outside of us. Okay, let me pause. We're going to stop on our journey to Florida. I'm going to review what we looked at so far. What have we learned so far? We've learned, first of all, that prayer will only move from a belief to a value when we become convinced of four critical realities. The first one, 
So the first one is that we are in a spiritual battle against a determined, powerful enemy who never lets up. We need spiritual armor for this battle that we put on and deploy first and foremost through prayer. We learned that the first agenda for that prayer is for the spirit to revive the church. And we've looked at a few pictures of what a revived church is like Acts and Paul's two prayers in Ephesians. So tracking with me so far, this is what we learned. This is how far we've covered everything that we've talked about in these five statements. One last thing and with that we're finished. In our prayers for revival, and we've got some picture of what that looks like, there's another element that is crucial. The history of church revival tells us that the first impact of revival and God answers those prayers for revival is a deep repentance. So if repentance is the first impact of revival, it stands to reason that it's also the best way to prepare for revival. And so part of our praying for revival of the church, part of becoming this kind of a healthy church that will attract people, which is the way we fight the enemy because he's trying to do the opposite to the church, make it ugly, and therefore discredit the witness, is by repentance. Specifically repenting of those things that get in the way of revival. For example, from based on what I've already said so far, maybe we need to repent of this peacetime mentality made possible by the ignorance of the reality of spiritual. We're not even aware that we are fighting against principalities and powers. But then, even after we become aware of it, there's an apathy precisely because life has been so good to us. And then how about satisfaction with dabbling rather than being a, dabbling in prayer, dabbling in corporate worship, dabbling in, our devo, in, in the apostles' doctrine, dabbling in fellowship rather than being devoted to it. And then of limiting the work of the, if it's all about the spirit and being filled with the spirit, we need to repent of some roadblocks that we put in the way of the spirit. And the scriptures actually focus over four things. So a whole different sermon in itself, but just, for you, just so you get an idea as to what to do in prayer. There are four things that the Bible says specifically limit the work of the Holy Spirit. First of all, we can grieve the Spirit, drive Him away as it were. He's grieved to be in our present through disunity. These are sins of bitterness and anger and all the relational sins. This is Satan's number one strategy, by the way. He's not primarily going to have a horde of demons jump on you in the middle of the night. He's going to sow seeds of discord. Secondly, lying to the Spirit by rationalizing disobedience. There's a story told right in the book of Acts. In the middle of all this revival, where people were selling their goods and giving to the poor, there was one couple who had some land who sold it and said they're going to give it all away. But they kept back some of it for themselves, but pretended they were giving everything away. They died because of this. We, we rationalize sometimes. That's what they were doing. I don't know why they changed their mind. Probably thinking, oh, this is much. I didn't expect to get this much money. I only promised this much. So I'm still obeying God. Whatever rationalizations happen, we rationalize our disobedience, right? Then quenching the spirit through rigidity and fear. We don't want the Holy Spirit. Maybe you're saying, hey, I like church the way it is. I know I can come in at such a time. We're going to have one song. Tony's going to come and welcome us, or, or somebody else in, in, in the Bolton church, and then we're going to sing three more songs, then we're going to have a, a prayer, and then we're going to have somebody come and read the scriptures, then someone's going to preach the word, we're going to have one more song, we're going to have announcements, and then the benediction. I like it that way. You know what? There's nothing wrong with that. If we really wholeheartedly engaged ourselves with that, we'd probably be revived. But what if the Spirit wants more? That's quenching the spirit. And then finally, discounting the spirit through unbelief. Oh, come on, Sundar, we really are in this kind of warfare like this? What are you trying to do? Are you trying to stir me up? And devotion versus dabbling, is it really all that important? 
Yeah, those are the ways in which someone can discount the work of the Spirit. So those are some of the ways in which we might quench that Spirit coming into our life. So, what do we do now? What do we do with all this? Just two things. I told you, we're, not, we're in Florida now, okay? So you can forget about how we got there for now. Now that you're here, now that you're convinced that we're in warfare, that prayer is the foundational weapon, that reviving and changing the heart of the church is the primary agenda. And we need to get rid of certain things that get in the way of the spirit. Now that you're there so far, what do you do? Two things. Two things are easy for you to do. First of all, please mark down Sunday, September 29th. Oh, Sunday, that's four weeks away. Yeah, I want you to put it in your calendars. You, this is one time you can pick out your uh, iPhones and whatever else you have. Interrupt the sermon if you wish. Enter that day down. Encounter 7.30 to 9 o'clock at 3DCH, Bolton and uh, congregations and Vaughan congregations joining together for a time of corporate prayer. You see why? Because one of the other things we learned from the church history is that when it comes to this business of revival and uh, repentance, doing it together corporately has historically been extremely important. So mark down the date and then I'm going to say to you, protect it because you're going to get something better coming up. This is why so often we don't commit in case something better shows up. Choice itself has become a value in our culture. Well, take a stand against that. Mark down that date and say, that's carved in stone. And by the way, thank you so much for turning out in prayer two weeks ago after Kate preached pretty well the same, another version of the same message. I didn't know she was preaching it, she didn't know I was, which means the Spirit wants you to hear it for sure, right? So, mark down that date and protect it and come. You see, one of the best ways to learn to pray is by hanging around with people who pray because we're really learning a language. And if we learn, if we hang around people who are praying for revival, if we hang around people who are learning to repent of the sins that quench the spirit, if we hang around people who are crying out to God for more, who are not satisfied with dabbling but who want to devote themselves, then slowly we learn to pray those prayers. And it's okay, you're learning a new language. You don't have to be original. You just have to be true to scriptures. And by the way, here's something else. When you hang around with other people, you'll get more insight on how to pray for a particular issue. Let me give you an illustration that somebody shared with me many years ago. Let's say you're gathering together to pray for a middle school in your community. And four people are gathered together praying. A person who has the gift of mercy will probably pray for all the fatherless children in that school. Someone with the gift of giving is probably going to pray for whole new initiatives of raising money for the next new buildings. Someone with the gift of faith is going to pray for evangelism, is going to pray that Christian students will get up there and begin to witness more boldly. You see... Different people with different gifts pray differently. And next time you go and pray for that middle school alone by yourself, you will now be able to pray with a much richer vocabulary because we are learning from one another. And so hanging out together in prayer is so important. So mark down that date, protect that date, and come. And by the way, when you come, you're not going to be made to feel awkward. No one's going to be made to force to pray. Think of yourself of coming and sitting in the middle of an orchestra where all the musicians are playing around you. And you don't have to play at all. Or you can pick up your instrument just when you're ready. But just come. Immerse yourself in an experience like this. So please, mark down that day. That's the first thing. And then secondly, review this message at least once this week. Maybe more if you have time. Asking the Spirit to deepen the conviction 
then life is war. Let's pray together. And worship team, feel free to come on up as I'm praying. Lord, you're going to have to do the same stuff over and over again. Please do what you promised. Send the Holy Spirit. Yeah, my words have no power at all. That's why Paul prayed. His words he knew had no power at all. What hope is there for mine? Unless you grant your people, myself included, the spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might know you better, that the eyes of our heart will be enlightened to know the hope of your calling, the riches of our inheritance in the saints, the incomparable greatness of your power, the fact that you were raised and given a name above every other name, far above all the principalities and the powers and the spiritual wickedness and darkness that fight against us. And we need you as Father to come and touch us. For the, some people here in this room, Father, who cannot connect with God as Father because their own fathers did not love them or bless them. So we pray, come again, spirit of adoption. Let the love of the Father be poured into our hearts so that together with all the saints, we may know the length, the breadth, the height, and the depth of the love of Christ. And we pray that this kind of glad fellowship, that you, you will take 30-minute parties and small groups and explode them to the level of fellowship that we couldn't have even imagined, Father, but only because you can do it. We are asking you to do big, big things because our enemy is huge and we're small. Oh, we need you, Jesus. So will you please come and revive us and use the song that is going to be led right now to combine music and poetry to again quicken faith within our hearts and find new channels with which to express our longing for your presence in Jesus' name. Amen.